It is a great blessing to be a part of the Lord's Day Assembly, and we ought to always remember what a great blessing it is to be a part of the Assembly of the Lord's Church. So oftentimes, people in the world do not recognize, and sadly to say, that sometimes even among our own members, we do not recognize the great privilege it is to meet with the Lord and to meet with His church and to be a part of that. And so this evening, really, it's a continuation of the study that we have been doing in Acts chapter 2. And in looking at Acts 2 and looking at the events of Acts 2, we began this mini-series with the preaching of, the, of Peter's sermon. And this is actually verses 22 through verse 36. And in that sermon, he addressed Jesus or he addressed the topic of Jesus. And Jesus was approved of God. He was delivered and put to death. He was resurrected and exalted to the throne of God. And in verse 36, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now in, verses, in verse number 37, the people asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter responded with his exhortation in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, following that, we have the proper result or the proper response. Now, there were no doubt others that responded to the gospel by the rejection of it. But 3,000 men responded. And we find that in verse 41, he, he wrote, or that Luke wrote, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now added unto whom? Well, verse 47 answers that. And the, uh, in verse 47, Peter, or rather Luke recorded praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so it was to the church that they were added to. So 3,000 souls that day were added to the church. Now in looking at this, then you have the church was established and as a result of the church being established, it says in verse 42, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and breaking of bread, and in prayers. In this particular passage, I believe this is the first Lord's Day assembly. Now, I think we could really assess that pretty easily. Different commentaries will say different things about it. I remember talking to one man, and, and he said, well, it might not be limited to the assembly. And it might not be limited to the assembly, but the assembly has to be a part of it. Now, one person I talked to said, well, it has nothing to do with worship. And I said, well, then what about prayer? And he just walked off. Well, prayer is worship. And I believe that all five avenues of worship are found in this particular passage. Now, he listed for us four different things. It says, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And in fact, I don't think there's any doubt, at least not in my mind, 
And by what I've read in commentaries and things like that and different arguments that they've used, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that breaking of bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper here. And so you have at least two avenues of worship found within this passage. But I think we could show that all five avenues of worship are there. Let's think about this for a second. The great event that took place on that particular day and the salvation of the souls. Now when God does something that is so spectacular, so um, encouraging as to the salvation of a person's souls, what's the natural response of that? Well, the natural response is worship. I mean, I look back at the Old Testament and the various people and the different things that God provided for them. I remember David going out into battle and he had a great victory. And what did they do? He bowed and worshiped God so oftentimes. Or other great men of the past, when great things happened to them and God provided so much for them, the natural response of spiritually minded people to the great events that God's provided is worship Him. So why wouldn't this be worship? Would Luke be concerned with the other aspects and other things concerning life? I mean, would it be, you know, so oftentimes people will say, well, what about fellowship there? And they have this narrow-minded view of fellowship like it's a meal. And they say, well, what about that? Well, there's a whole lot more to fellowship than just a meal. Now, that's not to say that our meals are not times of fellowship and have in common. We do have those. I think they'd be better called something else. But I remember one time talking about the word fellowship and what it actually means and talking about the fact that when the church has fellowship, you know what that is? When the church has fellowship, it's a reference to worship. We have in common and it's not a reference to a meal, and, and, but a reference to worship. But at any rate, why would they focus anything else? Why would Luke be focused on anything else other than worshiping God as a result of the great things that took place that day? At the very least, worship was involved. And all five avenues of worship, I believe, then are found within this passage. And so we have the first Lord's Day worship assembly of the church in verse 42. Now let's explain each one. We're going to start with the Apostles' Doctrine and we're going to really start with a little bit of an introduction to the Apostles' Doctrine. Now the word doctrine, all it means is teaching. So it could be translated very easily, the Apostles' Teaching. I mean, it's the same word that's oftentimes translated uh, teaching. And if you'd like to know what it is, I'll tell you later. Just ask and I'll, I'll give you the word. But nonetheless, it's the normal word that's translated teaching. And so we're talking about the apostles' teaching. Well, teaching is accomplished in two basic ways, especially when we're talking about the Lord's Day Assembly. It's accomplished by instruction and it's accomplished by teaching or by singing, rather. And we're going to look at each one of those ideas. So let's begin with the Apostles' Doctrine concerning instruction. And I use the word instruction 
because I felt like it was a better word to use to explain what we're talking about. Because instruction is, is also accomplished in two ways. Sometimes instruction is accomplished by preaching, and sometimes it's by reading. And you could imagine on different occasions it might be better for a particular congregation to read the scriptures rather than to have a lesson preached. But preaching is that particular thing. Now the word preaching and the particular word that we're looking at in this particular lesson means to herald and to or to proclaim. Now we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 10 here in just a second, but let me explain it what we mean by that. Now you know what a herald is, at least I hope you do. The picture that always comes to my mind is the person that in the past would be riding on the horse and he's galloping from town to town and he He's given the message of the king. Well, in our own history, do we not have someone that heralded a message? Now, it wasn't the message of the king. It was a message of other different sort. In fact, I always think about Paul Revere. That's what Paul Revere was doing. He would go town to town to, to warn people that the British are coming. That's what that word actually has reference to. Now there's another word that means to, to preach the gospel and it's actually one word and we don't have an equal word in English, but there is those two particular words that are most often used that are translated preaching, but the most often is this idea of a herald or, or one who publishes a message and I'm talking about publishing it in, in a proclamation way or a verbal way. Now in Romans chapter 10, Let's go over there and let's notice this particular passage because I believe it helps us to understand this idea and concept of preaching. He said in Romans 10 verses 13 and following, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how shall they call on, the, on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And so there is a process that's taken place here. You have a congregation, they're interested in preaching, they send a man out to preach, he preaches the gospel, and as a result of preaching the gospel, there are those that hear and those that believe, and as a result of believing and hearing, they then call upon the name of the Lord and they do such by obedience to the gospel plan of salvation. That's the process that Paul spoke of in this particular passage. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that the scriptures teach that men are to do that. And we go out into all the world and we try to proclaim God's word throughout the world. But it's for the purpose of the salvation of souls. And we must always remember that. And whether it's an encouragement to brethren or whether it's an encouragement to sinners, it doesn't make any difference. It's still for the salvation of souls. Now, when I first began preaching, I was preaching in a small congregation up in Kansas. And I saw a bumper sticker and it says, Think Souls. And I took that little bumper sticker and put it on the pulpit and put think souls to remind me 
that when I preach, I need to be thinking about the souls of men. We need to think souls. And by the way, that still is available. But And I've had a lot of students that came back to me and said later on that they did the same thing. Because we need to remember it's about the salvation of souls. Now, also, the instruction comes in the form of reading. And sometimes we overlook this particular thing. But, you know, if a congregation has been planted in a particular locality, and I think about different ones that I've known about over the years, sometimes they don't have men that are qualified to preach. And it is best then for them to read the scriptures and just simply to go back to what the scriptures say. In Colossians 4 and in verse number 16, Paul wrote, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So they were to read the epistle that was written to them, that is the epistle that of the book of Colossians, and then they were to read another epistle that we don't know about, that God did not preserve, or we don't know that he preserved it, but that was the epistle he wrote to the Laodicean. Well, you know, that's public reading of Scripture, and that's what we're talking about in the, this particular place. You have the same basic thought found over in in uh, Second Thess or First Thessalonians five and verse twenty-seven, where Paul wrote, "I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto the the holy brethren." And so it was the public reading of Scripture that he was talking about, and instruction can come by the reading of Scripture. But we also find that in Revelation one and verse three which says, Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of the prophecy of this book, that if any... Or, I'm sorry, I started quoting that and then missed the quote. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now, no doubt, Revelation 1 verse 3 was about the epistle of the, of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, but it could be applied to any book. The reading of Scripture then is one way that instruction can take place. Well, another way that teaching takes place is by singing. And I think that's emphasized in a couple of different passages. Now, when we talk, talk about singing, two passages usually come to mind first thing. The first is Ephesians 5 and verse number 19, where Paul wrote, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So we speak to yourself. And you know, one of the things that we talk about in this particular passage is not reciprocal action. Reciprocal action is back and forth. And so it's not reciprocal action, but it's actually in the, in the original what's called reflexing. In other words, when we sing, we're reflecting ourselves upon what we're, we're singing and others are reflecting upon what we're singing. Brethren, it really boils down to this. We are teaching when we sing. And we can sing false doctrine just like we can preach false doctrine or teach false doctrine. So we have to be sure that the songs that we lead and the songs that we sing are 
true to God's word. And if they're not, we need to just be quiet. And, you know, sometimes song leaders don't really, really read it through or understand a particular thing. And sometimes we just have to say, I'm not going to teach that. I'm not going to be a part of it. And I'm going to be quiet during those, those times. Well, I don't know of any other way that we could approach that. We have to be careful that we're not singing and we're not teaching by our singing false doctrine. We have to be careful of such. Another passage, and it's really their parallel passages, if you don't know, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians are parallel. In fact, there are a lot of similarities between the two books. And it's very clear that this particular passage is parallel with Ephesians 5 and verse 19. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, can, you, can anybody deny that singing then is teaching? Well, no. He says, teach and admonish you one another. So, we understand that teaching, or that rather singing is teaching, and we are teaching by our songs. Now that has a lot of implications there. Now is that the only purpose of singing? Well, of course not. I mean, do we not need to praise God in our singing? Well, yeah. Do we not need to encourage one another in our singing? Well, yeah. You know, I've been listening, or in the past, recent past, I was listening to a series of lessons on singing that was done, I believe it was in Pennsylvania or maybe Virginia or something like that. But anyway, it was a series of lessons that were done. And I found one particular statement that really stood out in my mind. Now there are a lot of different statements that stood out, but this one particular thing, statement I thought was very interesting. Because we teach one another and that we're speaking one to another, you know, sometimes when we sing, we ought to have somebody in our mind that we're singing to. Now, I'm not saying, and, and I'm not saying turn around and look at that person or something like that. But, you know, think about this for a second with reference to the invitation. We're going to be offered an invitation. And an invitation is intended, I mean, we're teaching in that invitation, but we're also exhorting one another in that invitation. And do we also know people that need to respond sometimes to an invitation? And so when we're singing that invitation song, and we're inviting people to respond to that invitation. You know, it might be good for us to be thinking about a specific person that we know that ought to respond and sing to that person. And in reflexive act and action, sing to ourselves at the same time. I think it would, we would improve our invitation much when we would think about someone that we know needs to respond. Well, so how do we then speak to one another? How do we teach and admonish one another? Well, both passages use the same terminology that we do so by, by uh, uh, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, there is a difference between those three ideas. The word psalm is a reference to a pious song or a song of praise. And it actually carries 
more than just simply that particular idea. Some have said, well, it's from the Psalms, but I don't think it's really from the Psalms. There are other Psalms besides what we have recorded in the book of Psalms. And there are other ways that we can sing Psalms of praise, but you know, how many Psalms do we have within the book of Psalms that are praises? We call them hallelujah or hallel psalms. It's actually hallelujah's Hebrew uh, word that we use in English. But it's a, it's a word that comes from praise. And it, that's what it means. Praise God. Hallelujah. It means the same thing. And so we sing psalms. And that has reference to psalms of praise. But also we sing hymns. Now, hymns are what's normally defined as sacred songs. That is, holy songs. Or songs of praise could be the same thing, but it was also be inclusive of, of thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for loving me, and those kind of songs like that. Or songs that would include supplication. That is, the beseeching of God for help in our daily life. And then you have spiritual songs. And so, spiritual songs are songs that are of a spiritual nature or a spiritual character. And I think that's the best way of looking at it. We look at that particular song and we notice that it's a spiritual character. And as a result, because it's of the spiritual character, it cultivates the idea of spirituality or it cultivates us devoting ourselves and giving ourselves in devotion to God. By the way, don't you imagine that's why we call sometimes when we get together and we sing with one another a devotional? Because we're encouraging one another to devote ourselves unto God. And we're doing so by song. So those are the three terms that are used there. Now are they... Are they absolutely defined? We could, could we take every psalm and say this is, has to be this type and this one this type and that one that type? I don't think so. I think psalms, songs that we sing sometimes can fit in multiple characteristics as far as these things are concerned. But I found it also interesting. One man that I know that was an extremely good song leader, well-studied, and he said, you know, I try to pick out songs when I lead them in services that reflect all three of these ideas. And I thought, well, how? I mean, that takes a little bit of preparation, but I thought that's pretty wise for us to be thinking about. And so the Apostles' Doctrine is instruction that includes, or teaching that would include instruction, both preaching and reading, and then the singing is also then teaching. The next thing he says, fellowship. And we talked about this particular word in the past. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because we've talked about it. I was given the assignment of looking at uh, giving. And we looked at that particular word at that particular time. Now, I use these different passages for that. And every time... and. And, you know, I'm really careful about emphasizing particular words in a passage because I don't want to, to distort what the passage says. But the passages that I wrote down and the words that I highlighted is the same word in the, in the original language 
that's found over in in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Praising God, or verse 42, and they continue steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's that word right there. The word fellowship. And it's from a word that simply means to have in common. Brethren, when we give, and I think this is really the key here, when we give, we are in fellowship with the work of the Lord's church. I mean, that's what giving is for. And which means then that when I have become so hard-hearted, and I know men and brethren that have done this, when I become so hard-hearted that I start withdrawing my support or withdrawing my contribution, I'm to one degree or another withdrawing my fellowship from the Lord's church. How sad that some brethren would do that. Now, do I think then that we have to give everything to one particular congregation? Well, no, I don't believe that. We can be in fellowship with the Lord's work in a lot of different ways. And if a congregation is not spending the money like they ought to be spending, which is not a reflection of this particular congregation, but if they're not doing what they ought to be doing, then can I give to another work? Well, yeah, but don't withhold your contribution from the Lord's work. That's withdrawing fellowship. So all of those different passages had that. And go back to it and read each one of them. Most of them are actually dealing with the, the support of poor brethren, specifically the poor brethren in Judea. Some are dealing with the support of preachers in doing the work. But none, uh, none is exclusive. And all of them, all these words are from the same original word. Well, next we have the breaking of bread. Well, the breaking of bread is kind of an interesting expression. It is an expression that was used only by Luke. In fact, it's only used five times within Scripture. It's used in the book of Luke one time and then four times in the book of Acts. And the word simply means a meal or a supper. And that's I'm using the word supper in the sense of not like we do in the Midwest with reference to the evening meal, or at least that's the way I was raised. We called the evening meal supper. And if it was a Sunday afternoon time, then we called that a dinner. The rest of the time we called it a lunch, the middle meal of the day. But anyway, that's the way I was raised. But we're not talking about the evening meal. What we're talking about is just simply a meal. And that's what breaking the bread means. And Luke must have grow, grew up in an area that used it that way. And it can mean a sacred meal, such as the Lord's Supper, or it can mean a common meal. Now, what would determine how it's used? Well, the context. Let's think about this for a second. You know, this evening, more than likely, I'll have some supper. And we understand I'm talking about an evening meal. And I'm talking about just a common meal that we have every day. But you know, aren't we very thankful that a little while ago we were able to take part in another supper? Now that supper that I'm talking about is the Lord's Supper that we were able to participate in. And notice the way I said it. I was very careful because I did not want to use the word the Lord's Supper. 
I wanted to, to say it in another way. This supper, or that supper that we partook of a little while ago. The context determines how the meaning is. And we understand that. That's true with any language. And so we know that the word breaking of bread can have reference to the Lord's Supper or can have reference to a common supper. Well, in Acts 2 and verse 42, I think it's pretty clear that it refers to the Lord's Supper. And there are actually several different things that would indicate that. But nonetheless, I believe that that's what we're talking about. That we're talking about when we gather together on the Lord's Day and the same expression was used in Acts the 20th chapter in verse number 7 where, where Luke again recorded the idea to break bread. And one of the purposes of the assembly, not the purpose, but one of the purposes, there were more than one purpose, and that article today that I included in the bulletin actually talk about this very thing, that there are other purposes of the assembly. But this one purpose is to partake of the Lord's Supper and to break bread. And so that's what this is referring to in this particular passage. Now, what is the purpose of breaking bread? Well, it's to commemorate the Lord's death. And we do so by the remembering of the two elements, the unleavened bread. We know that it represents the body of Christ and also the fruit of the vine representing the Lord's uh, body. Uh, the Lord's blood, rather. The next thing he made, made mention of there in that particular passage in Acts 2 and verse 42 is prayer, the last thing he mentions. Now, with reference to prayer, I wanted to look at a couple of passages that will help us to give us insight concerning prayer. And the first one is, is Philippians, the fourth chapter, and verse number six, where Paul recorded to the Philippians, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. So he referred to prayer in four different ways in this particular passage. And I, I think that these four different ways will help us to understand a little bit more about prayer. The first is the generic term that the word prayer. And in this particular case, the word prayer actually means like a general request or general petition. And it can also include devotion. So once again, we find that idea that we're devoting ourselves to God and we're giving ourselves to God in that prayer. And that's what that word means. Then he said supplication. Well, supplications are more specific prayers. That is when we pray for something specific. Now, oftentimes we will pray for generic things, but then sometimes we, we pause for a moment and we say to our Father which is in heaven, we say, please help me with this need that I have. And we are specific in that. Or please help us as we try to focus upon Thee in our worship. That's supplication. Then he said giving of thanks or thanksgiving in this particular passage. And we need to always remember that prayer is, in part, should be inclusive of giving of thanks. We need to be a thankful people. 
We need to be thankful always to God. That's why I include that note within the bulletin each week. Because we have to think about how can we be thankful to God and the things that we can be thankful to God for. And then the last thing he said, request. And he says, let your requests be made known unto God. Request or petitions. Or it could be translated asking. So let your asking be unto God. Now, with that in mind, notice where the focus is. The focus is on God. And I know, you know, sometimes we get up here and we pray to God and sometimes we lose focus. And how many people do you know that they're leading a prayer? Men that get up before a congregation, they're leading prayer. Next thing you know, they're talking about God rather than talking to God. Hmm. You think they lost focus? Yeah. Sad to say. Let us be focused. We're not addressing a congregation. We're sharing and we are in fellowship with the congregation as we pray and we're leading the congregation in that prayer. We're not praying before the congregation and we're not beseeching the congregation and we're not addressing the congregation. We're not exhorting the congregation. We're praying to God and we're sharing in that prayer. Well, the other passage that I chose is 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. And in that particular place, Paul wrote, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made unto all men. So supplication, same thing as what we talked about. Prayer, same thing. Supplication, remember, is specific request. Prayer is general request. Then he added the idea of intercessions. You know what intercessions are? You know, we sometimes people get confused about this and they, they associate intercession with mediation. Well, how many mediators are there? Well, just two verses later, he, in verse four, he will beseech us that there is one mediator between God and man. But how many intercessors are there? As many there are Christians. And so all of us are interceders. And the word intercession simply means we're interceding to God on behalf of someone else. That's what that word means. When we pray for the sick, you know what we're doing? We're offering up intercession. When we pray for those that are physically sick or in ailments and those kind of things, when we pray for those that are spiritually sick or pray for those that have responded to the Lord's invitation, we're making intercessions. That's what that word means. And then the last one is the giving of thanks. And once again, we need to be a thankful people. Well, with reference to the Lord's Day assembly, we saw all five avenues of worship. Now, from the first century, when the church was established on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 30, we find this worship assembly of the church. Can you imagine all the changes that have taken place since that time? I mean, the faces in the assemblies from that time till now in 2022. I mean, those faces, there's been all kinds of changes. We don't see Peter and Paul and 
Mark and Luke and others like that or Lydia or, or uh, uh, any of the ladies that we read about in the Bible, but faces have changed. And so members of the church have changed over the period of 2,000 years. But also, think about this. Places have changed. It's, not long, it's no longer in Jerusalem, but it went out to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. And faces have changed, but places have changed as well. And then also languages. I mean, you know, the Lord's blessed me to be in a lot of different places and, and different languages being spoken in all those different places. And I joke around about the Hispanics sometimes when I go down there and I'll say... Won't it be gl a glad day when we're able to be in heaven and we're all speaking the same language and that we're able to communicate and that language will be English. And of course, they're always humored by that. And they come up later on and tell me, no, 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 it'll be Spanish. Well, we don't know how we're going to be able to communicate. But you know, through the ages, languages have changed. And... Brethren are meeting in all types of places throughout the world this day. And yet they're speaking different languages. But then think about the cultural changes that take place in different places. And the way that people dress changes from place to place. And not only that, even the way that we do certain things have changed. But you know what's really amazing to me? That as far as worship is concerned, and as far as those five acts are concerned, those five avenues, they're still the same. And I find a lot of comfort in that. That no matter what the differences that we have and the differences through the centuries that God has assigned to the church those five avenues of worship. And no matter what we look like, no matter what we dress, no matter what, how we accomplish it, we're still accomplishing those five avenues of worship. Now, you tell me, in what other way do we do things the same as we did back in the year 30, 80, 30. I mean, nothing's done that way. But God, in His providence and His knowledge, gave us the commandment of the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And they apply to all of us throughout all the world and for the last two, uh, 2,500 years or 2,100 years. That is amazing to me. And what a privilege it is that we can have a part in the worship of the church. This morning we do want to offer the invitation. If you're not a Christian, you can become a Christian by faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. And if you are a Christian but need the prayers of the church, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing to encourage you.